All right, turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 9, verses 32. We're going to spend the bulk of our time today in Acts chapter 10. So it's a lot of scripture reading today, so just be prepared. But first, we're going to be reintroduced to the storyline of Peter, uh, the main character that the book of Acts has been following so far. You guys realize that, right? Last week, we saw the conversion of Paul, and we were kind of introduced to Paul, and we're going to get more into Paul around Acts chapter 13, I think. But we saw already Paul starting to preach in Damascus. He's starting to preach in Jerusalem. Each time he has to flee for his life, right? And now he's shipped off to Tarsus. So we had a a little bit of an introduction to Paul, and then now we're switching back to Peter. So Paul's story is kind of closed off for a little bit. We're returning to it in a few chapters. Stories resettling on Peter, and that's where we're at in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among all the believers, he came down also to the saints living in Lydda, There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside And then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon the Tanner. Okay, so let's pause right here. That's the end of Acts chapter 9. So again, we uh, had just heard last week about the amazing, miraculous intervention of God in Paul's life, Um, and now we're looking at Peter, and what we see here is um, kind of a reminder about what Christianity is really about on the ground, because one of the things that can happen to us is we can be so caught up in the story of Peter and John and James and Barnabas and Paul and Philip and Stephen that we can start to expect that if our lives don't really look like that, if we're not moving from town to town preaching, if we're not escaping prisons and mobs and being beaten for the Lord, then we're not really being a real Christian. We're not really living out the calling God has for his people. And instead here, we are reminded of the typical smallness of the people of God with these stories of Aeneas, who was ill for eight years, and the story of Dorcas or Tabitha, who, who died, who passed away. Uh, there's a, and this shows us that there's a difference between the shepherds, those who are called to go out and sometimes take on the enemy in full assault and, and who live these great big epic lives, but those lives are marked by suffering, and the, the, the normal people, the everyday people who are called to lead quieter lives in devotion to Jesus. You know, there's a, I think, touching little detail about Tabitha where she had 
made tunics and other clothing, and it, it was saying she's devoted to good works and acts of charity. So it's clear, like, she's creating clothes for the poor, right? This is a time before mass manufacturing. So what she was doing in her own quiet way, her skill was knitting. That's what God had gifted her with. And so she was using that skill to clothe people. That's the way that we can sort of practically live out the calling God has on our lives. Not all of us need to be, you know, jetting off from country to country or from city to city preaching or healing people or doing these miraculous signs. Sometimes God calls some of us to do that. But a lot of times it's just taking your corner of the world and bringing God's light and love to it with the skills he's already given to you. That's what we see here in this this passage. There's a movement now uh, called the missional movement. Some of you guys might have heard of that, inspired by Leslie Newbegin. uh, And it takes as its basic insight that Western culture is a post-Christian culture, including North America, and that we need to take the gospel to it. But What's interesting, and I have a lot of friends of mine who are involved in sort of this missional movement, church planning, and it's, it's a great movement, and it's very entrepreneurial, but one potential problem with it is conflating the mission of Peter and Paul with the mission of Dorcas. Do you get what I'm saying? Not everyone is called to plant churches. That's not everyone. That should be more people. But that's not everyone. That's not the only way that the gospel is shown. And actually, gospel transformation is shown in people like Dorcas. People like our parents, probably, who know Jesus, and they're not out there planning churches, but in whatever quiet ways they have, they are the beating heart of the church. The, the apostles are fighting for them. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus is fighting for them so that they can live planted, rooted lives where they display Christ to everyone, where they bear fruit for their neighbors. So that's why Dorcas is surrounded by this group of widows stitching clothing for other people. It's a reminder that apparently ordinary people are not ordinary to God. It's, it, the gospel is really about, the gospel often looks like disciples of Christ, again, taking their corner of the world and living lives of love and faith that God will not abandon them. So Newbegin, actually, who was a bishop of the CSI church, was actually very good about this. Missionary lifestyle for him meant that he left Britain in the 1930s to come to India to be a missionary, right? So obviously he had a calling on him to be sent like that. And some people will not exactly leave countries, but they'll be like the village leaders he trained. He trained a bunch of village preachers who would either take care of the church in their community or march around to the group of villages nearby and preach the gospel in every little town square. Some people are going to be like that. But many more will be the actual villagers themselves, the people who are leading transformed lives in the village as a gospel witness. And that's the way that they are missionaries to that culture. Do you guys understand what I'm trying to say? It's, it, what I'm saying is that we are all called to be missionaries. Some of it looks like Newbegin leaving his country. Some of it looks like the village leaders who are traveling around to the different villages preaching the gospel. And some of it just looks like people raising their children in God-honoring ways, in a Christian way, and talking to their neighbors, and being life for the community that they're planted in. That's also being a missionary, and we shouldn't denigrate that. We shouldn't look down on that. Now, this passage also raises a question for us. Uh, why were Aeneas and Dorcas healed 
and not others. I'm sure there were other people who had long-term illnesses for a long time, serious illnesses, and they were not healed. Some people are healed, some people are not. Dorcas died, but I'm sure she was not the only lady during those times who died, you know, when Peter was around. So why was she healed and not others? Well, it's a tough question to answer. One thing we do know is that, um, one thing that we do know from Peter's example is that Because people came to him to invite him to go there, it was known that he could come and pray for people and bless them. We're not not told, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that this story is not telling us why some people are healed and not. We can't really know the answer to that. We know that God is able to heal, um, but sometimes that he doesn't. And what we are told to do is even if he doesn't heal, we are supposed to remain faithful. That's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you guys remember that story when they won't bow down to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar? What do they say? King Nebuchadnezzar tells them, bow down or I'm throwing you into the fiery furnace. And they say, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace if you throw in there. But even if he, they actually say this, even if he does not, we will never bow down to your statue. That shows total trust in God. Our God is able But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We're still going to be faithful. That's the attitude we have to take to healing. And the other lesson for us here is that Peter, when asked to pray for healing, he doesn't pause or hesitate and be like, I don't know if if healing is really God's will for your life. He just goes and prays. He just goes and prays. And that's what we need to do. When people are struggling with illness or death, What we need to do is not give them a theology of how all of this is actually for their good or for the world's good. What we need to go is go there, cry with them, and pray for them, and pray for healing, and be faithful, and and have confidence that God is able to heal, but if he doesn't, we will still be faithful, and trust that there is a reason, even if we can't understand it. So that's just a little bit about that passage. Um, And now let's move more on to the heart of what we're going to talk about today, which is Acts chapter 10. So this is actually the longest narrative in the book of Acts. So settle in. Uh, So Acts chapter 10, and we're going to read off all of it. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, 
what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I'm only immortal. And as he talked with them, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon a tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us here in the presence of God, so now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Let's just stop there. Uh, in this story, uh, what we really see uh, are, 
there are two things I want to focus on, uh, the two visions. But what, what I really want us to focus on actually is how it's simply reciting the story of God that can bring outsiders and insiders together. The first section of the passage is neatly divided into two visions. First eight verses, the vision of Cornelius, of an angel or some divine being standing before Cornelius, telling him to go and invite Peter to his house. The second set of eight verses is the vision of Peter. Have you guys heard that story before? Peter seeing the cloth descending from heaven with the unclean animals on it, and then he's told to go and eat three times, and each time he's like, no, 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 I can't. I can't eat it. That's disobeying the Jewish law, the food restrictions. If I do that, I'm not a Jew anymore. And then God's saying, do not call unclean what God has made clean. So those are the two visions. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about Cornelius. He's a centurion. Do you guys know what centurions are? Centurions are Roman soldiers, not just Roman soldiers, but also commanders, uh, commanders of legions. Uh, so a lot of troops, they are respected people. But Cornelius is not just a centurion, he's also a God-fearer. Now that's, interesting. that's an interesting phrase because this seems to be a new category, right? What we've been seeing so far in the book of Acts is the gospel spreading from just within the Jews to the Jewish diaspora that had spread out throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, to the Samaritans, to the eunuch who came from Africa, and now to a God-fearing Gentile. Now, what is a God-fearing Gentile? It's not really clear, because usually what would happen is if a Gentile started believing in the Jewish God, he would convert to Judaism. But what does conversion mean? It means you would get circumcised. It means you would start following all the Jewish cultural laws. Culturally, you would start to identify as Jewish. You're no longer a Roman. You are a Jew. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's what conversion is. You are converting totally out of your culture into another culture, from a Jewish culture to a Gentile culture. But here we're, we're, we're seeing something a little unique, and it's, it's very interesting to think about. It's this idea that there's this person who God honors and sees even though he is outside the culture that he has set as his people. So this person prays to God. He know, apparently knows something about the Jewish God, but he has not gone all the way to becoming a Jew for whatever reason. Uh, he's not circumcised. He's not following the Jewish dietary laws or anything like that. So Cornelius, this guy, this Roman centurion who's a God-fearing Gentile, unique category, sees Peter. And Peter sees unclean foods. And obviously what they're doing is they're really seeing each other, right, in this vision. Peter, by seeing the unclean foods, is given a vision about the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles are those who are known for eating the birds of the air and reptiles and all these things that Jewish people are like, oh, no, that's unclean. We can't eat that. Um, so what, what was the reason behind these dietary restrictions? And I, want, I think it's worth going into to sort of explain what's going on here. A lot of these are rooted in Leviticus chapter 11, where there's listed out a whole range of particularly meats that Jews were forbidden to eat, Israelites in general were uh, forbidden to eat. And these food laws marked out the Jews as different and separate from their Gentile neighbors, reinforced by the rule. And, and this, this, this prohibition on eating the food was reinforced by the prohibition on even sitting at the same table as Gentiles who are eating that food. Does that make sense? So not only can I not eat the shrimp, 
but I can't sit at a table with a Gentile, whether or not he's eating the shrimp. We, we have to maintain our distance. So what's the reason for that? Well, table fellowship, think about it. Sitting around a table is what families typically do. And what God was doing was separating out and marking his own family. The Jewish people are his family. And he was keeping them apart from everyone else to make sure that they wouldn't become like everyone else, become like their neighbors. But now that Jesus has come, something new is happening. It seems like that situation of keeping the Jewish people separate was not God's intention for, um, for the entire time. So this kind of raises a question. Was God contradicting himself by doing that? Isn't that kind of confusing? And actually, I don't, I don't think so at all. So think about it as a parent with a child, right? When a child is very young, you give your child um, a blanket prohibition, right? Don't talk to strangers. It's a, there's a principle there. You, you need to be guarded. You need to be safe. But you tell your child, don't talk to strangers. But then, later on, you know, an uncle comes along or an auntie that the child obviously doesn't know. And, and then you say, speak up. Introduce yourself to this person. And the child's thinking, this is a stranger. I'm not supposed to talk. Is the parent contradicting himself? No. There was a principle there, but the rule was more for when the child was immature. Or another way of thinking about this that I think uh, makes sense is let's say a, a mother and a child are walking across the street. The mom makes it across the street, but then the light turns red. And for whatever reason, the child was distracted. The mom didn't notice. The child is across the street. So the, the mom seeing that says, don't walk. And then the light changes again, and then the mom says, walk. Is the mom contradicting herself? No. There's a purpose that she had. She wants her child to come across safely. Same thing. God has a purpose in forming the Jewish family. And the purpose was the purpose that was said, in, the blessing that was said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Through you, I will bless all the nations of the world. And so in accordance with that bigger purpose of saving and rescuing all of creation and all of humanity, God first told the Jews, don't eat any of these things. Don't have table fellowship. But now it seems like he's doing something different. Now he's reminding them, what God has made clean, you must not call unclean. And that, I think, is what Peter was contemplating in his mind afterward when he's puzzling over all these things. God's intention was always for the Gentiles to come in, but Peter, like the other Jews of his day, must have assumed. Peter knew that. Peter knew that all the nations of the world, you know, in, in Isaiah, there are so many prophecies. All the nations of the world are supposed to come to Jerusalem with their gifts in praise and in acknowledgement that God is the king of the entire universe. That's the picture of the end times for the Jews. Everyone's streaming to Jerusalem. That's why the temple is so important to them, because the temple is where God sits on his throne and reigns. That's the picture. But Peter, like the other Jews of his day, had assumed that that could only happen if the other Gentiles, if the entire world was converted to becoming culturally Jewish. Do you get what I'm saying? And now he's, Peter's starting to think, what, is, what does that vision mean? Does that mean that Gentiles don't have to be culturally Jewish in order to be a part of God's family? That's the, that's the, the thought that's in his mind. So, Peter's all thinking this through when the messengers from Cornelius come. And when Peter gets there, there's this kind of this funny faux pas because Cornelius, maybe he's like a little nervous. He's like, oh, a Jew is coming here. I had this vision from God. And so he just, he's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what the vision is like, but he just starts kneeling down to the ground and like worshiping Peter. And Peter's like, no, stop. Like, I'm a human being. I'm not a divine figure. And, and 
Peter could have used that as an opportunity because that happens sometimes when different cultures meet and you can just assume the worst of the other person. You're just not going to get this. You're worshiping me. Come on, you're not going to get this message. But Peter just says, don't worship me. And then he continues. He doesn't use that potential um, friction point as an excuse to run away. Do y'all see that? He, stay, he stays with it. So then when Peter shows up, what does he say? What does he say that's so amazing that causes the Holy Spirit to fall down? And I think there's so much uh, for us to learn from this. Peter does not try and explain Roman culture or the history of the world. Like, this is stuff I try to do sometimes. But it's so humbling to see what Peter actually does. It's in, from verses 34 to 44, and I'm going to read it again. Then Peter began to speak, speak to them, saying, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then from verses 36 to 44, which I'm going to read, all he does is recite the story of Jesus. That's what brings the Holy Spirit down upon this different culture. He doesn't have to do any fancy apologetics. All you, and it's so true. Guys, like, we need to have a confidence in the story of Jesus to bring the Spirit. I know everyone here has non-Christian friends, and we are so reluctant to share the gospel with them because we're like, uh, you know, like they come from a different culture, they have all this baggage, they don't understand what Christianity is, who am I to explain it to them? But if you are committed to the story of Jesus, you can just tell that story. That's all you have to say. So this is, this is what Peter says. This is the amazing message Peter says, so simple. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to that, he, to everything he did in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death. The religious leaders, that's what he's saying. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to everyone, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit spent fell upon all who heard the word. Just a few things I want to pick up from that story so that you can remember it. Maybe when you go out and have these conversations, and I would just encourage you to start having these conversations with your non-Christian friends or even with your Christian friends who believe, but maybe they only believe nominally. They don't really know what it is. It's just a cultural thing that they're doing. These are the elements of the story. Jesus preached to Israel. What is Israel? Israel is what bore God's promise to rescue the world. So Jesus preached to Israel, which bore God's promise for all of creation. John the Baptist, before Jesus came, announced Jesus' message to Israel that he was coming. Jesus came and destroyed the works of the devil. He's in opposition to the evil in the world. Jesus opposes injustice. All the suffering you see, Jesus is against it. He, he destroyed the works of the devil in Judea and Galilee and came to Jerusalem, where the people put him to death. But God raised him on the third day. The people put him to death. That, that's talking about how all the systems of our world, when they saw a perfect human being, what did they do? They killed him. The, the, the politics, you know, Pontius Pilate, governor of Rome, governor from Rome of Judea, uh, 
the wealthiest man in the world at the time was Herod. So politics, money, religion, the Jewish council, all of these forces were arrayed against Jesus. So that tells us something about this world, and it tells us about how evil operates on two levels. There's the spiritual level with the devil and his armies, and there's also the, the, powers and princi the principalities and powers, the power, money, and religion that are conspiring to try and run the world on their own terms apart from God. And when they see a true holy man, when they see a true innocent man, when they see a true perfect man, they have to kill him because he's a threat to them. But God raised him on the third day because he is God's true image. He is God's word. He is God's true representative of what all of humankind is supposed to look like. And this is described as God's action. God raises him from the dead. So God sent the message of peace through Jesus. God anointed Jesus. God was with Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. God told us to preach and spread the word. And God ordained Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. That's all you need to know in order to share the gospel. And when that is shared, this Holy Spirit falls in the form of tongues, just like upon the Jews who are praying in Acts chapter 2. It's the same experience. Now, why is that? Why is that important? That's confirmation to Peter that he doesn't have to circumcise them to baptize them. Because that would be a question otherwise. Like, the same thing that is happening to us, that happened to us as Jews, is happening to these Gentiles. They are experiencing the same power of the Holy Spirit in the exact same way. So that's why Peter basically says, you have the Spirit, now we have to baptize you. There's no reason we can't baptize you. God is pushing Peter so that he cannot deny baptism. And this is really important because in the next chapter, which we're going to talk about next week, Peter has to justify his baptism of these non-Jews to the rest of the Jewish, Jewish Christian leaders. Do you understand what I'm saying? He has to be like, look, the Holy Spirit fell on them. There's no reason why I, could, I shouldn't baptize them. Because they all had this question. So, and I think that, that tells us something. Um, tells us something about our own mission work, I think, especially as a church and just as Christians. Um, right now, there's this big movement to have multi-ethnic churches, right? Um, but I think we make it too complicated because we ask all these questions. Do we downplay our culture? Is it wrong to do that? Do we, do we try and be culturally specific? Isn't there a place for that? The thing, let me just say, first of all, I'm proud of my culture. I love the M-A-L-L-U song just as much as the, the next guy on YouTube. I just watched it the other day. And I was like, I, it was a great video, and it was, it was really cool. I love that song. And it, it's cool being Malu, right? But love for your culture can't be ultimate. But at the same time, let's not make the opposite mistake of thinking that there's such a thing as a neutral culture. That, there, that if I take away my Malu culture, then there's some neutral, like, heavenly culture that just exists. Do you get what I'm saying? Because I think sometimes some multi-ethnic churches make that mistake as well. There's no, there's no neutrality. There's no default. All you have to do is own up to what you are and then don't restrict the spirit of God from people who are coming from a different culture. Don't throw up additional barriers to you being one family. Does that make sense? Be proud of who you are. That's fine. But don't use who you are uh, as an excuse to not be in Christian fellowship with a Tamil or with a white person or with uh, a black person or a Latino Christian or an Asian Christian. What brings us together, what is more uh, primal, what is more foundational is the story of God that we were talking about, is that belief that we believe, is that core belief that God acted in Jesus in all these various ways. Um, Jesus is the central actor of this story. 
And so when we think about this, let's think about who we are in this story. Are we Cornelius, the Roman soldier, the, the outsider looking in? I've had an experience uh, in my life like where I felt like outsider, an outsider a lot, particularly in high school. I was the kid in ninth grade who was like eating lunch in the library. I think I talked about this with you guys before. These are my sob stories. Uh, you know, eating lunch in the library, not really knowing anyone. I came from private school before, so by the time I got into public school in high school, I didn't know anyone really. Uh, so I, I know what it feels like to be an outsider look at, looking in. Are we that? Are, is that kind of the way we feel when we come to church? Or are we insiders like Peter? People who we have an idea of what the people should look like who belong to our church. And let's make this very specific. Like, we do this here in Austin CSI too, right? We assume that the only people we can invite to church are other Malayali Christians that we know. That's not true. You should feel free to invite white Christians or white non-Christians or Hindu people or Muslim people or Asian people, that's real evangelism. We should have a confidence that just saying, reciting the story of God is enough to bring them to faith, that the Holy Spirit can work through that. And we shouldn't try and protect this church and be like, you can only be a Malayali or you can only be another South Indian Christian or you need to be Indian Christian period in order to come here. Let's have a little bit more confidence than that. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that we are going to downplay our Malayali roots because all three of us here right now in, the, in this worship service, we're all Malayali, right? So we're not going to pretend like we're not. We're not going to pretend like the Uchin who comes here, William Abraham Uchin is one of the most Malayali people you could meet. He's a Malayali Uchin. Or Sherwin Uchin, if he comes, he's a Kannada Uchin. Like, that's who he is. We don't have to deny that. We don't have to be so insecure about that. But at the same time, we don't try and keep ourselves in our own little huddle. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, so with all that said, let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you burst open the barriers in our hearts that we often um, throw up that hinder the spread of your gospel. Multi-ethnicity is not a goal, Father. That just is your church. We already are from many different ethnicities, many different skin colors, many different cultures. And Father, let, let us have the right approach to our culture. Let's not be embarrassed by it. Let's have a right uh, appreciation for it. Let's celebrate it. Uh, let's not try and hide it. Let's not be ashamed of it. But at the same time, God, help us not make it ultimate. Help being a Malu or being an American or being whatever identity marker it is, help that not to be ultimate. Make love for your son and devotion to the story of God in Jesus Christ ultimate in our hearts. So that it is through devotion to that person, to that person, the person of Jesus Christ, that we can identify our brothers and sisters and enjoy the blessings of community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.